Listener Production. Shares, Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday morning mailbag edition. I am Scott Phillips and I'll stop trying to speak in single words as he put proper sentences together. He is the always erudite, always thoughtful, always appropriately intoned. Andrew Page. How are you, mate? Yeah, I don't know if that's true, but yeah, thanks, mate. I'm I'm good. <laughs> I'm still I'm still reeling from um from a, a very colourful uh, turn of phrase you used on Friday's podcast, I have to say, to do with electrodes and body parts. If you didn't listen to that podcast, I highly recommend <laughs> it. It's, it. It's suitable for kids. Don't worry. But so it was it was an interesting turn of... It's your choice, Andrew, of... Um, yes. Uh, I need a way, better filter. to motivate people. Yeah, there's... You know, that, that some people have that um, bit in their brain that sort of connects the instant thoughts to the mouth. I, mine just passed straight through and doesn't doesn't always work the filter, out well. The filter's not there? No, it's not a great filter. Filter, filter optional, I see. Uh, luckily, this is a podcast. You know, I, have we ever had to edit this? I think once a very, very long time ago, which I'm not going to go into, but I don't... I think it was only one time we've actually had to edit anything out of a podcast. I... Well, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Our listeners won't, won't know the bit one of take. I'll tell you about it afterwards. One, well, who, can you believe it, listeners? Can you believe this is only one take? It is so <laughs> professional, so thoroughly thought through, so devoid of ums, ahs, coughs and sneezes. You would imagine it's just some highly well produced, highly polished. Can I say, by the way, our producer Link does a wonderful job looking after us, so thank you for doing that, mate. But uh, otherwise... It's the man that yeah, needs just, the credit. Just one yeah. Exactly, just one, one take. Mate, um, speaking of one take, speaking of uh, names... Tom sent us an email. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Tom starts by saying, G'day, Scott. By definition, Phillips. And Andrew, it depends, Page. We are very, very... You know, I did a radio interview just before we came to this podcast. I used the word unequivocally three times. I've really <laughs> got to work on a thesaurus. At some point, I'm like, oh, this is just embarrassing. <laughs> so yes, obviously not something that I'm... Uh, it's not a new problem for me, apparently, using the same phrases. That yeah. being said, we talk for about 42 Guilty. hours a week. So uh, on this podcast, it's probably, probably pretty likely we cover the same... Going to repeat ourselves, 100%. Tom says, I've been listening to the show for about two years and love it. Thank you, mate. You provided me valuable insights and your simple, easy to understand messaging has helped guide me through my investing journey so far. Thanks, mate. Earlier in the year, Scott answered a question from a listener who was asking about weighing up staying in a high-paying job, working long hours, or taking the punt and starting his own business. Also, that was both of us, actually. Although, as Tom goes on, this could not have been more timely for me as I was grappling with a similar conundrum. Scott's Hmm. perspective and Andrew's preceding rant helped me to have the confidence (laughs) to leave my high-paying job, oh dear, uh, a high-paying unfulfilling job, he says, to work within my passion and skill set, which is ag tech or agricultural technology. Hmm. I'm I'm feeling deeply, deeply responsible at this point, mate, for whatever comes next, can I say? If we've, I hope if we've it works out of, well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Remember, it depends. There's lots of it. De- I'm hope, hoping there was lots of it depends in there. But I think like, I, I, it was you know, a bad idea. Go on. Yeah, look, I, I mean, that, it is great though. I think I think this is, we are, we are yeah. so lucky in this yeah. country where failure doesn't mean you're on the street. I mean, there, there will yeah. be regret. There's, this is the risk, right? It might mm-hmm. not work out, but it, it's an opportunity to sound a bit like a, fortune cookie here but it's an opportunity for growth it's an experience and and the the downside isn't as as devastating as it might be elsewhere yeah yeah that's true uh but so again, well done it worked out badly it was andrew's responsibility for work so well <laughs> yeah. you're welcome um this segues into my question he says something that i've yet to hear discussed on the pod machine he likes the pod machine andrew i'm telling you it's, it's, it's catching it's, on something i've yet to hear discussed is the opportunities in agriculture particularly within australia 
As a country kid, says Tom, I have a passion for farming, but also the increasing potential for ag tech to revolutionise how, as a society, we are able to produce more food with less. Now, at this point, before I ask Tom's question, I'm going to give a absolutely shameless plug for the other podcast I do called The Good Oil with Scott Phillips. If you haven't heard me talk about this before, let me just say one more time, the With Scott Phillips thing is not my idea, it was theirs. Trust me, I have no desire to see my name in lights. There's about 14 different Good Oil podcasts around the world. So I was I was persuaded slash told by Southern Cross Austereo that I should put with, a, with Scott Phillips on there so people could find it. So in advance, I, I, I cringe, but that's what it is. <laughs> the Good Oil with Scott Phillips. Uh, I spoke to, do you remember, oh, I won't ask you actually out loud, I'll just, I'll just say it. Uh, the former ABC journalist, Martin Cudahy, uh, was a name and a, a journal I'd listened to a lot. He was, at different times, uh, a, a country correspondent for a whole lot of things, and then a foreign correspondent for the ABC in Africa, most recently, before giving up journalism. Uh, he has taken up a role with his wife's family's um, farming business. That they are, they are station owners in central Queensland. And so Martin Carter, he and I follow each other on Twitter. Uh, he's a really smart guy. I always liked following him when he was, or listening to him when he was a journo. Uh, but we kind of followed each other on, on Twitter and just for one reason or another. I had a really fantastic chat with him on The Good Oil about his journalistic background and career, the change to working on a station, and now his life as a ringer and a pastoralist and a, and a, and a station owner. I just thought it was a... I, I loved it, frankly. A really, really great podcast. So, Tom, uh, firstly, before I get to your question, please check that out. Anyone else who's interested in either some really fun war stories from Martin Cudahy, uh, including some advice from the great late Mark Colvin. Uh, have, have a listen to that. But also, I, I'm of, of a view, and Tom, I know you'll agree with this. Um, we, on one hand, we mythologize the bush. On the other hand, most of Australia's population live around the coast and wouldn't know a, you know, a heifer if you tripped over one. And I think there's something really... Um, I, I, I enjoyed talking to Martin and finding a bit more about the farming sector, the agriculture sector that we all think we know, we all think we is important, but we don't really know that well. I, I could go, you know, a million, well, I've got some cows around here actually in barrel, but most people, you know, particularly in the city, you know, the food arrives in, in, a, in a truck on a, on a shelf. Um, and it's not the, not the cliched kids would these days would know where food comes from. But I think it's just a useful, it was a really good conversation. I enjoyed it. Um, we talked about the challenges of climate change. We talked about the challenges of export and, and regulation. We talked about the transition and what he learned and, and uh, what he didn't expect uh, from that transition. So I just want to give it a massive plug, partly because it's my podcast, mostly because Martin Carter, he was a fantastic guest. So I'm going to throw that out there. Please give it a listen if, you, if you're half keen. All right. Back cool. to Tom, because it's all about Tom, not about me. Therefore, says Tom, my question is, what are both of your thoughts on the agriculture industry in Australia. Do you see any opportunities or value? If so, what are they? And how did you arrive at them? Or more importantly, if not, why not? They say Australia was built on the sheep's back and it would seem to be at a macro level, Australia is perfectly positioned to produce food and fibre for a growing global population, particularly with Asia on its doorstep. However, for all the value it contributes to Australia's economy and society, agriculture appears to be severely underrepresented on the ASX. I have my theories on why this is. I wish you'd told us, Tom, because you're the expert. I'd love to know. So if you are listening, um, hit us up with your reasons or, or anyone else who's got a view. I have my theories on why this is, says Tom, but I'd love the wisdom and insights from the two high priests of, brackets, trigger warning, Andrew, close brackets, retail investing in <laughs> Australia. Love the show, boys. Keep up the great work. You're both welcome to come on the road with me anytime. Visiting cattle stations in the Gulf, the NT and the Kimberley, as long as you don't mind fishing for barra in croc-infested waters and explaining to ringers and cowboys around the campfire what straw man is. <laughs> Regards, Tom. 
Which reminds me, Andrew. Oh, what, 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 is, what is? No, you didn't. What yeah. is straw man? We're an online private investment club. <laughs> see, to see when, when listeners ask the question, I get to pretend I'm not going to ask the question. Mm-hmm. I get to ask it anyway. Nicely it's just gold. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that, mate. For for lots of reasons. Thank you for the kind words. Thank you for throwing me the joke, and thank you for uh, introducing or asking about ag tech. By the way, mate. You are going to regret making that invitation. I'm absolutely. I'll, I'll take it up if I can, if I can get the time off work and the time away from the family. I will absolutely come on the road with you up in the Northern Territory, Queensland, and Kimberley. I, I haven't been to the Kimberley yet. I'm desperately keen to get there, and I love a night under the stars by the campfire and a swag. So, mate, hook me up. Uh, but uh, but that's that's a different conversation. Uh, Ram, agriculture yeah. investment opportunity or not? I mean, I really I'm very optimistic bullish even about ag ag tech. I mean, it's a new term. I mean, the reality is ag tech has been in progression for the last 10,000 years when we move from the sort of a hunter-gatherer kind of lifestyle. It's always been improving. And and in the last 100 years, Mm. it's improved radically. But we're nowhere near a, a, a maximum what in terms of what we can do. So there's really cool stuff coming out in terms of like pest management, uh, weed mm. management, you know, just robots on what well, doesn't, you know, it's not like a Terminator kind of robot, like things on wheels <laughs> that, have, that have cameras, <laughs> which will spray, will spray, will actually recognize a weed and spray only on that. So it's obviously much better for the rest of the crops. You don't have all this other crap on them, but also you just saves huge amounts of money. And there's a thousand other examples of things like this are happening, cool things that you're doing with sort of GPS uh, systems integrated mm. with it. And just, mm. it just, and, and, and it is a science, right? Farming, like you, you see really clever farmers. They are incredible business people. And like any business people, they're all looking to get an edge. And so, um, yeah, I, I think it's, I actually think it's a fascinating sector and it's obviously a very, very important sector. I mean, to see the productivity gains in, in any industry, I don't, I find it hard to, to go past uh, agriculture. The fact that, I mean, hundred years ago, working a farm required hundreds of people and, you know, now you can, now you can do it with a very small set of people just because of all the automation and the capital equipment machinery and stuff that, yeah. that we all have. So I think it's, I think it's, I think it's exciting. But the reality is it's extraordinarily tough business because you can't predict the weather. You can't predict commodity prices. You can't predict exchange rates. There are, there, it is capital intensive, uh, in, in, uh, a very capital intensive industry. There is the unknown uh, factor of longer term climate change beyond just normal day to day seasonal variability. That, that there, there's a, a, a thousand things that are just outside of your control, and so farming is a very tough business. Um, uh, so it, it's like two opposing thoughts. I think obviously mm-hmm. important. Obviously, a lot of exciting things happen. A lot of it, a value to be created there. I think the I think the value is it's maybe akin to talking about the picks and shovels of, of mining. And it's often said that if you oh, really yeah, want yeah. to make money yeah. in, in mining, you go for the, mm. the, the companies that sell the picks and shovels because no matter what the miners do, you've got a guaranteed sort of customer there to, to buy your stuff. And and there are a lot of sort of ag tech companies that are providing these sort of services to mm. to farmers. And and, and that, that might make it a little distance yourself from some of the, the, the frontline challenges that, that the, the broader farming practice has. Um, and one other thing I've just got to give a bit of a shout out to, because mm. I, I follow him on, on Twitter and I heard a few podcasts of him recently, a guy called Jacob Walkie, really young guy, uh, uh, runs a farm 
cool. yeah, in, in uh, Lavington, I think it is, right. in New South Wales. Um, yeah, but except he's done a couple of cool things. One, you, I know you're going to cringe at, but the oh, he's, he's got these, these uh, yeah, Bitcoin. He accepts oh, Bitcoin. Uh, is he so telling me NFT cows or something? Is that what you're going to tell me? Next? He's got this, he's, he's done this amazing thing where he's got these um, uh, butcheries, which they're, they're unmanned. So you right. sign up to a subscription, you get a pin code, you walk through, the system detects what you take oh, out, cool. debits your balance. You know, and, and that is that is a real world application. I mean, he didn't invent the yeah. technology. This yeah, technology yeah. is out there. But he's applied it in such a way that, you know, he'll butcher and package the meat mm. or pay someone to do that and then stacks it there and this thing's just open 24-7. And it's gotten real traction. And and it's just it's a it's a great example of someone with a real entrepreneurial flair taking it to the oldest industry in the world, maybe the second oldest, depending how rude you want to be. Um, and and <laughs> And 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 making a go of it really against mm-hmm. against the big corporate farms, and there that, that's the other thing that's really changed in farming is that they there are, I think we have this vision of the the mum and pop sort of mm-hmm. operation, and obviously I, I forget the exact breakdown of the industry, but they're they're far less significant as they were. They, there are there are corporate run, run entities. Yeah, there are. Yep. Why aren't they listed? I'm not sure. I can think of elders. I can think of a few examples of related AOCO sort of company. Another one. Australian yeah, that's, that, company. that's the other one. Yeah. They maybe tend towards conglomeration and uh, aggregation. So maybe there's only a few and only the big ones list. But yeah, what, what, I don't know. There's, there's a long and disjointed rant. What, what do you think? It's a great one. I can, can I say, mate, I've been holding this joke for ages. We said uh, technology on the farm, but not the Terminator. I'm thinking of the Terminator coming. I'm looking for Sarah Canola. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Hey, 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 that, hey, is, hey. that is awful. That was worth waiting for, wasn't it? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's, that's dad joke squared, that is. <laughs> but I, I've, got an, I've, got, I've got a soft spot. I've, yeah, I, I probably will break that one out at some point. You can use that one. Um, so, uh, again, actually, in part, I'm going to say, listen to the podcast <laughs> again uh, with, with Martin Cutter here because he does talk a little bit about some of the corporate farms and family farm stuff and, and what's Okay, great. And, yeah. You talked about the fact that good, good farmers are doing well. It talks about also the uh, the skyrocketing uh, price of, of farmland at the moment too, which is fascinating. Um, so lo- yeah. lots of lots of interesting stuff going on there. It's a valuable it's a valuable asset. Yeah, it is. I like your picks and shovels approach, mate, about ag tech particularly. Here's what I, I I feel a bit disloyal and almost a bit mean or unkind, or I wish it wasn't true. Agriculture is a primary industry, and primary industries tend to be terrible investments um, because they're almost always price takers. Yeah. And so, honestly, if there were more on the ASX, would I invest in them? Mostly, probably not. Um, not because I know for sure that I'm going to do badly, but because the opportunity for genuine margin enhancement over and above commoditization is really, really limited. Not zero. You've talked about the the you know unmanned butcher, and, and there's you know there are some uh, farmers that are doing a really, really good job of branding their beef, for example. Uh, Wagyu itself was it was effectively a, a branding exercise. Yeah. Um, I mean, Wagyu was a thing, but the idea of bringing it to the you know Angus same thing, the black Angus or Angus yep. beef same thing. Um, so there are some good stuff being done, and I'm not going to say it can't be done. And I wish it wasn't true. Maybe it's not true. I hope it's not true. Actually, if I, I'd, I'd like to be wrong in this case, because for any farmers listening or, or, or rural communities, I, I hope I'm wrong about this stuff. It's just it's just bloody tough. You've said it's bloody tough to make a quid. Um, you're, you're at the mercy of the market pricing. Uh, I, I did tell to Martin in the in the podcast. Because I'm in a, a slightly regional area here, uh, we get the country hour, 
on the ABC at lunchtime. And I don't always listen to it. I very rarely do, actually. But occasionally I'm in the car or doing something. And the last five minutes of the country hour is all of the uh, all of the sale yards around the around the state, um, you know, sharing the prices. Oh, the you know, Dubbo sale yards, and they got this price for that particular animal or or, or whatever. Um, and I just I, I like I like listening to it because it's just kind of it's a reminder again of what's going on outside my little you know technology work at home bubble. Um, actually, people do real work out of farms, <laughs> um, keeping the country fed. But it's just it's just a really brutally tough industry, and any farmer would tell you that boom and bust all that kind of stuff. Um, are there really opportunities for meaningful long-term compound returns that would exceed other opportunities? Normally not. Unless you, if you're a value investor and you find a time to buy the right agricultural company at the right price when you know uh, prices are at cyclical lows, middle of droughts and that kind of stuff and profits happen to be low, you might get a recovery. Over time, do I think the earnings growth of a farming enterprise is going to beat the earnings growth of some other companies on the ASX? Probably not, almost certainly not, and it just—I don't. I wish it wasn't true. It's a bit like REITs to some degree. You, you're, it's a function of land, really. Um, not just, of course, it's a farming practice, and there are some great farmers out there. Don't get me wrong, but the, the ability to genuinely make a long-term compound return in excess of the market is just really limited, in my view. So, uh, again, I wish it wasn't true. I'd love to think farming was a, was a great investment. I'd love to think our farmers are doing really well and all that kind of stuff. Uh, some, are, as you say, Ram, the ones that do it really well do it really well. And again, Martin talked a little bit about that. Um, I don't mean to keep plugging it, but rather than hear me say it, listen to him say it because he's actually doing it. That's what's going on. Um, but yeah, really, really, really fascinating, interesting. So, so uh, agriculture generally is tough. I will say we've recommended elders to our members uh, at Share Advisor. Uh, elders is one step removed from agriculture. It is basically an, it's not just an agent. It's sort of about five different business lines, but largely sits between the two. And it gets the opportunity to, to retail it, 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 um, largely at it's on sales to some live export stuff. There's there's a whole lot of things going on in that business. Um, I won't go through it in detail now. Jeez, they've they had a horror a year. I'm just looking. Yeah, share price wise, yeah. Um, it's probably why you reckoned it, I suppose. It's a bit cheaper now. Well, this is the this is the thing, right? So we talk about variability and cyclicality. They had a great year the previous year. And so part of the part of the comeback, I mean, the, the share price is still triple what it was four or five years earlier, I think, from memory. You'd probably got the graph in front of you, or the chart in front of you. Um, it's been you know, it's been up and down all over the place because that's it's just a volatile business, right? It just is what it is. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that that's almost my point. But even, even yeah. then, as I said, it's one step removed and still super volatile because it's reliant on prices, it's reliant on, on crop yields, it's reliant on um, stock sizes, all that kind of stuff. So it's really, really tough, Tom. I wish, it, I wish it was different. In terms of ag tech, I agree with you, Ram. I think picks and shovels are a great way to do this. Um, mm. The way that farms are going to... Oh, sorry, one more quick one. Uh, it's super competitive, not only locally, but internationally. You're competing against farmers in South America and America and yeah. you're competing against government subsidies in Europe and all sorts of stuff. Ah, it's just, such it's a big brutally one. tough, right? So, uh, yeah, just lower- Tariffs. And, and this is why it's tough, right? Like I'm, I'm, all, for, I'm all for free trade. I'm absolutely all for free trade. Um, we've got some policy questions to just really quick tangent. We've got some policy questions to answer as a country about what we want to do as a, as a country. Um, you know, if we allow our- we, we, we let car the car manufacturing industry die because other countries effectively subsidised or had better economies of scale. And so we chose not to continue to make cars in Australia because it didn't make sense and we didn't want to keep providing subsidies. Completely fine, completely appropriate. At some point, <laughs> we know government subsidies in the US and the EU are huge. The labour costs in South America are tiny relative to ours. And at some point, you say, well, what do we want to do? We want to have a, do we want to have an agriculture industry? Uh, now, the good news for us is the world's growing in population. Asia has become more affluent. We are very close compared to... We have lots of scale issues getting to the rest of the world, but we're bloody close to Asia. Um, so there are some reasons why we might be... Lots of great land. 
Lots yeah, of great exactly. land. Exactly. So we got some we got some questions to answer in terms of what we want to do, and and farmers do it tough competing with that sort of stuff. You know, can I? Going yeah. In. Just just to add, there's a se- strategic security element to it all uh-huh. as well. You, I mean, 100%. you know, you don't you plan for the worst, hope for the best kind of thing, but you're not in a very good footing as a country yep. if you import most of your calories. You know. Correct. So you want to, you want to have some policy view, but so that that aside, I think I think. Picks and shovels is absolutely the right way to play it. If you think about what's going to have to be done or what's going to be chosen to be done by farmers to become more productive, more competitive, more successful, or just to combat, to, to remain at the current levels of success when others around the world are, are, are doing it better and cheaper and not say better, but you know, get subsidies and find ways of, of getting product out there more cheaply. I've got to say, when you go to the supermarket, do you care if it's Aussie beef? I hope so, but maybe you don't. Um, I used to work for Heinz a million years ago. They have a canned meat factory, and and every now and then, most of the most of the meat was Australian. But when Argentinian beef was cheaper than Australian beef, they just import Argentinian beef instead. They just literally imported whatever was cheapest, or use whatever was cheapest, I should say. Mm. Um, so it's a dramatically cutthroat commodity business. Even even in beef, we're used to commodities being coal or iron or a wheat. Uh, beef is just as cutthroat. There are some quality elements sometimes. Sometimes it's just purely done on price. That's that's so, what I would yeah. say. Just quickly, that would be our competitive advantage. I think was mm. what New Zealand benefits from this too. Is we have a really good brand for Australian produce. 100%. You know, we don't bleach our chicken. We you know we're reasonably restrained with hormones and all other kinds of things. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of pesticides, herbicides, uh, all of that kind of stuff used. Yeah. Uh, good conditions for cattle. So that that's the kind of stuff I I always given a choice lean in more to the value add premium side of things. And I think. That's that's where the the edge that we would have. One, as you rightly mentioned, proximity to to a very big and growing market, but one that increasingly demands very high quality as well. And our other advantage, just to come back to the ad, ag tech side of things, is that we are very efficient with what we do. We are very because we are so oh, rich as a country. Have, yeah. Yes, and that's that's where we go. That's where we're we're gonna stand a fight, stand a chance in the fight against the, the, the very low paid workers. They might need 200 people on the farm to do it because they don't have the industrial capacity and capital equipment that, that, that modern corporate farms in Australia will be employing. But yeah, it's so, still going to be bloody tough. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So to your, to your point, I think what I would, I, I agree, the, the picks and shovels are the way to play agriculture. Um, now, Tom, you already know this because you're in the you're in the ag tech space, which is great. Um, I would I would just I, I'd say I, if I was looking for an investment in that area, that's now I'm not saying your business necessarily or any tech is going to work necessarily. Picks and shovels still don't necessarily make a fortune for everybody. By the way, Levi's were a gene invented for the gold miners in California, so you know there's some there's some there's some good business that come from these things. Um, but I think that's I think that's the future. I think as farmers look around, and say how can I do it cheaper and better and whatever, they're going to look at technology because it exists. I spoke to a bloke completely independently of this, by the way, yesterday, and Sparky was at my place. He's saying he worked he works with a um, kind of a um, internet guy. Can I say internet guy? There's a better word for it. Um, <laughs> who puts you know Wi-Fi networks and but really long range, like 12 kilometer point to point Wi-Fi networks in farms, so they can monitor you know water levels and stock levels and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think it was. Oh, drones! I can't believe I didn't mention yeah. drones before. They they're Oops. being used in uh, really cool ways. They're more than that, mate. So there's one. I think it might have been Martin who mentioned. If it wasn't, I read it separately. But. Um, there's one station who are trialing satellite tags in the ears of cattle. You know the, the cattle tag? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, yep. and it's cutting down the time it takes to muster cattle from three to four weeks to some number of days because they know where they are. Yep. So you go out to them and get them rather than have to look, go out and look for them. 
Yeah, uh, why not send a bunch someone, of drone out, drones out right. to herd them back where you need to come as well? Yeah, there's, exactly. there's all exactly. kinds of cool things you can do. Yeah. So anyway, I would, um, yeah. Well, yeah. on the, I would say that when when um, we sort of say the picks and shovels, and when we mm. say sort of the ag tech kind of angle, yep. Yep. within that, just by nature of the how dynamic and and how many new things are emerging, there is going to be a huge amount of startups in that space and there's yeah. going to be a huge amount of failure because that's what happens, yeah. right? There's everyone sort of competes. It's, it's sort of having a good product what or want. a good idea is, is one <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. Executing it is another and mm. then getting wide enough adoption is, is another as well. So it depends where you are on the spectrum there. There might be some companies with a very established product, profitable, good traction, et cetera, et cetera, able to, to, to take the offering to other parts of the world, you know, really blue, blue sky, but with good firm foundations. Mm-hmm. And there are others which are, oh, we're going to do this with drones and AI and throw in a few buzzwords and yeah. that's going to be really cool because look how important farming is. And there's, so you, so, so even in the direction that we're sort Story of saying, stops, baby. yeah, yeah. You've, you've, you've just got to be aware because there will be, and I know there are, Again, I've seen a few things just on YouTube or whatever with, you know, the, the, the pesticide control. And it's a really great idea, but just really cutting edge, early, early stage stuff. And despite the potential and the promise, statistically, a lot of them are going to be, to be very tough. But I'm so glad that there are people out there building these kinds of things because they, because they, 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 whoever wins, there will be big technological advances and big productivity uh, gains as, as a result of it. Great point. Um, I will add to that, by the way, it's also possible you end up with a product that people know, like, and use a lot, but it actually doesn't have a point of difference. So you get copied really quickly and your, yeah. your, your first move advantage just completely disappears. Right. Uh, unless, you've got, unless you've got something specific and special about your particular business, someone probably in China is going to say, cool idea, let me do it for a third of the price and roll it out. Or just, <laughs> so, or just, or just copy it at the same price. The first, the first no, exactly. farm with the sure. combine harvester, man, that yes, was much exactly. better than right, the exactly. dudes with the sickles, right? And then, right, and exactly. now we've all got them. So, correct, correct. And, and the combine harvester companies don't, uh, don't have a point of difference either because they're all the same combine harvesters. You got yep. to prove why a John Deere is better than a whatever, and that you kind of go from there. So, yeah, yep. yep. Um, yes. So, Tom, I think that's hopefully. I think we've answered your question. And again, I will look forward to my invitation to uh, to travel with you uh, up in the Gulf, the NT and the Kimberley, mate. I, I'm not kidding. I'll, I will be there. Uh, we'll have to work out how to do this podcast by. Um, maybe, maybe Tom, you've got some sort of satellite agriculture technology that lets me do the podcast from there. If you have, now's a good time to, to let me know. Well, that's the other cool thing. Starlink, right? Really changes the game for a lot yeah, of these does. operations. Because yeah, you can be am, out, in the, out in the Kimberley and have high speed internet. Yeah. So I don't know whether we'll do this actually. I might try, maybe I'll write off on podcast costs. Uh, we are toying with, so we're going to go, we, we're going on our holiday, as you know, in a couple of weeks' time. And we're going to drive up through South Australia up to uh, up the back of uh, out sort of uh, actually going to Lambert Centre and to Chambers Pillar, uh, and then across to Uluru and then around the back that way. And I I thought well maybe I should buy a satellite phone just in case something goes wrong. You want to be able to contact someone right or get get some help just in case a, you know something gets injured or something happens. Turns out buying a Starlink satellite dish and router to take on the road is cheaper than buying a satellite phone. Yeah. So I'm literally thinking about buying that as the backup. That's big and bulky and whatever, but I can also I use it for actual satellite access, not internet access, not just in case I need to call triple zero or triple zero. Uh, so I actually might, I may end up doing that. If I do, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes after afterwards. But yeah, not, not only can you do it anywhere, where, you know, in terms of fixed satellite, but these things are designed. It's called their Rome plan or something. You can actually take it with you and set it up next to the car and have satellite internet wherever you are, as long as you're line of sight to the sky, which is also just. Oh, bizarre man. crazy i'm so look it's not to be an elon fanboy mm. or anything like that yep. and starlink gets a bit of coverage but I, I think a lot of people miss the significance of, of what uh-huh. that or a similar platform yep. al- allows in 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 that 
Mm. Do you remember it wasn't that long ago that – so the current theme is AI. Before that, yes. maybe it was batteries, EVs, lithium. <laughs> yeah. well, the market goes through through various fads. Maybe four, five, six years ago, there was the, the, the fad was the, the IoT fad. That's so right, Internet of Things. The Internet of Things uh, and the Internet of Everything. You know, we're just yes. basically you've yes. got more and more and more connected devices. Well, often yeah. really good ideas <laughs> and really good technologies – what they require is an enabling sort of technology. So well, that's all really good on paper, but the truth is I just can't get a signal out here. It's only going to work in these kind of yep. areas. This is such a game changer, such a game changer in terms of yeah, what that enables to, uh, 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 us to do really. And, and you're, you're going, I just, I, I feel as though it's, I don't know if I would invest in it. I, I can imagine sending huge amounts of cube satellites up into space. Costs, <laughs> yeah, that's, right. and that's why the, that's why the, uh-huh. that's why the, the unit costs so much. Those economies yeah. of scales will grow. I have no doubt that prices, um, uh, will come down, mm. um, but yeah, I, as an enabling technology, I, I feel that the, the coolest things will be the things we probably can't envisage out of all of that. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about Starlink and it and its ilk. There are others out there. Yeah, for sure. Have you heard of? Have you tracked? Well, he's going off topic a bit, but yeah. uh, there's it, it, it like doesn't get also much coverage. But um, the Kiwis uh, and Rocket Lab is a really yes. exciting uh, company. Um, I haven't followed close attention, but I know of it. I know it's been around doing its thing. Putting yep. putting this really small micro satellites up in a space or almost so it's throwing a handful of handful of you know something up in the air at the same time um little boxy things right well space is not that far away you go a couple kilometers up you're in space yeah. right or yeah. 10 kilometers you know it's not much right it's 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 really not that far so these little yeah, things can enough. and they're right above you right and yeah, if there's enough yeah. of them and there's yeah. There's, they're, they're, it's not a government-funded sort of reach for the stars, explore for humanity <laughs> yeah, right, kind. It's exactly. a commercial enterprise, yeah, and I haven't. Yeah. I need to come back and sort of look at it. But it is, it is the the reason that they can even and uh, hope to to be profitable and a, and a viable enterprise is because the demand for space is is just is huge because yeah. of what it enables back here on Earth. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a space geek. I'm, I'm pretty excited about all that stuff. You're a bit of a geek in general, mate. That's what Just in general, stop. Yeah. <laughs> I'll own it. I'll own it. Exactly. <laughs> hey, um, let's, go, uh, let's go to our next question. This one comes from, oh, they, they, it says anonymous. Now, at the top, put, you want to be anonymous. I didn't read it. I happened to read down, so you're lucky, anonymous. Uh, hi, Scott and Andrew. Thank you both for your informative podcast. I am a regular listener and thoroughly enjoy it every week. Although I was aware, says Anonymous, of the importance of compounding from purely a mathematical point of view, I was slow to use it in practice from a financial perspective. I think if I had planned it early, I could have almost doubled the super I currently have without any adverse effect to my current lifestyle. Now, I'm going to stop there. because I'm going to read this again for anyone who doesn't have enough of us bang on about compounding. Now, I can't promise the numbers are real, but just have a think about this. If I think if I had planned it early, I could have almost doubled my super I currently have without any adverse effect to my current lifestyle. Now, ma'am, I reckon my current lifestyle is the point. Because he's not saying, anonymous, I think it was a bloke, I'm not sure. He's not, he or she's not saying, I could be putting more money aside now and have more super. He's saying, if I just started earlier, past me, could have put more money aside, Presently, wouldn't need to have any lifestyle changes. I just would have put more money aside then. And that would have compounded while I was just doing my thing. And by now, I'd have more money invested just by taking advantage of that compounding, just by time. We've talked about that. I think we're going to talk about it in the upcoming episode again. It's one of those, you know, 
time traveling problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, that's really important. All right, here we go. This makes me want to help my 18-year-old son with some money for long-term investing. I'm thinking I might give him some money to invest in A, his super, or B, a low-cost S&P 500 ETF. Say, for example, I might do both, 15000 in super and 15000 in an ETF outside super. The main idea of having investment in two separate vehicles is to help him fully appreciate the true value of compounding. Hoping he won't cash in the ETF early, but even if he did, he'll still have the money invested in his super until he turns 65, which is a long way away. I like the, uh, I like the planning there. My quick calculation shows that 15 grand invested in his super today could be anywhere between 300 grand, assuming 6% per annum, and more than a million, if I assume 10% per annum, by the time he retires, which will hopefully be very handy for him at that point. As you may have heard Jackie Chan once said, if his son is good, he will earn himself and won't need his dad's money. But if he is not, then he'll simply waste dad's money anyway. In either case, there's no point giving money to the kid. (laughs) (laughs) Although I like Jackie Chan's way of thinking, my idea to give my son some money to invest is not only to teach him the true meaning of compounding early in his life, but also to do my best to help him with a little capital that I could give him now. Any comments, views, flaws, or alternative ideas on this strategy would be highly appreciated. Thanks from Anonymous. This is hmm. a really great question. It's actually a much more complex question than it seems because we've got <coughs> excuse me, we've got inside super, outside super. We've got the mathematical realities and, and opportunities of compounding. We've got the different returns that are possible between now and his son's retirement. And we've <laughs> frankly got the psychology slash uh, commitment, uh, pre-commitment <laughs> bias, if we like, of, of putting it in super saying, well, if you waste the first lot, at least you've got that lot left over. Your thoughts, mate. Uh, and also... Uh, Honourable mention of Jackie Chan, of course. Um, mm. Your thoughts on on the quandary, question, suggestion, strategy? No, it's it's I no, it's, it seems very reasonable. You know, we really get we oftentimes get these questions that are just so thoughtful that the people mm. have obviously clearly thought about it, <laughs> yes, and yeah. and we get to a point too where there, there's um. There's different hurdles to cross when you're, when you're talking about finance. And I think mm. it's the early ones, the big ones that are massive. And because we've got such smart listeners, um, uh, <laughs> we get to these questions which are really ones of fine tuning and optimization, you know? And it's, it's so it's sort of like, I feel, I don't feel as equipped to sort of say, well, you should definitely do this or you should do that. Because there's, you know, both the, 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 the scheme is sort of laid out there as entirely reasonable. Now, is it, is it perfect? No. Could it be better? Is it right for me or is it right for other people? Not necessarily. But it's just like, here's a guy or girl that gets compounding and knows the importance of starting early and is dedicating to put some aside. And it's just like everything after that just is detail. And we can talk about that detail if you want. But I, I just feel as though you're already there. You know, you mm. kind of... Yeah, I mean, I, I've said before, to, to be a bit more specific and, and less hand-wavy, um, <laughs> I, I keep a good chunk outside of super. I like the flexibility that, that comes with that. Yeah. But at the same time, super is a wonderful sort of force-saving mechanism and wonderful tax advantages. So just like, you know, do you want to analyse that and work out a, an optimum point on the curve as to where the asset allocation and that goes and what's your assumptions for this? I, I don't know. Half there, half there. Perfect. Good. Good enough. You know what I mean? Like it's, I, <laughs> yeah, I, totally, totally. I'm going to really struggle to yep, poke any yep. holes in that thinking. Yes, I am going to uh, agree with you and also try and poke, no, not poke holes, uh, just make, just offer some additional thoughts. Uh, one is that I would 
be inclined not to just invest in the S&P 500 ETF, um, particularly in this instance because I, I'm, we're kind of currency agnostic generally. But if, you're, if you're making a one-off investment at a single point in time, uh, the value of the shares you're buying matter. The value of the dollar matters. Uh, we talked on Friday about the the fact the dollar's at sixty five cents right now. Um, I just you know, sending money to, investing in a US dollar denominated asset at this point may or may not be the best use of the cash. Um, so you might think about either staging that investment in a couple of tranches or uh, maybe broader a couple of ETFs, maybe something like. And again, we can't tell you what you should do, anonymous, um, but. Uh, you know, maybe a, an ASX and an S&P or a, a global or something else, just to, just to kind of spread out the currency risk a little bit. Might be useful if you're an Australian investing in only or solely in a foreign denominated asset. It's probably not the single best thing I would suggest people do, but again, each to your own. Um, I like the I like the combination of super and outside super. I think it's I think it's really smart. Um, I think it's probably you're right that the learning process here is best over long periods of time. Uh, I have a very different uh, son, much younger than yours. Well, much, I guess eight years younger. Um, he's got a, uh, it happens to be shares. He's a business I've done work with before. Um, account that has 173 bucks in it or something. You kind of, when, when he gets pocket money or gets money for keep putting, you know, sending cans and get the 10 cents a can back, um, we make him, he gets to spend some. He's got to give some away to teach him to, to you know, um, teach him the value of charity and also invest some. And we match him dollar for dollar. So it's 173 dollars in that account, and that's gone up and down. He says it's gone up and down a little bit, and hopefully over time we'll see the, the long term compound value of that. So teaching him the lessons is really really important in my mind. I'm not sure you can't do that just completely inside super anyway. For what it's worth, the as long as the super account your son chooses is a low fee one with a pretty simple, relatively plain vanilla investment strategy, that'll grow equally. You'll learn the value of both anyway. Um, now, as Rams already said, you won't be able to touch the other 15 grand until he retires, so half and half's not bad. Uh, but I wouldn't leave it outside super deliberately for any specific reason other than if you want him to be able to cash it in for a, a car or a house or something else. So again, that's probably a question for you and your incentives. You don't need to do both and you can learn compounding inside super as much as outside. Uh, but obviously, if it's outside super as well for other reasons, that's that's a very reasonable approach. I think you're right about Jackie Chan. And I think the last thing I'll just finish with is... Um, you can lead a horse to water. Uh, this this gets into parenting slash relationship advice at some level. Uh, I I firmly believe in not tying money to things if you're giving it to somebody. Um, not because I don't want it to be true, but because relationships are more important than money. Uh, and so you're giving someone. If I was going to give my own black money, say so you can have this money, but only if you use it for this. Or you know, I, I, want, I want to approve what you do with it. Or you can't sell you can't sell the shares until I say so. Uh, they can become their own points of friction. So I just would encourage, just, just for having thought about it, and this is not a finance advice, that's, I'm clearly not a relationship counsellor, but just think about the interaction of relationships and money uh, for everyone listening and, and in whatever, you know, between partners, uh, parents and kids, all that kind of stuff. Uh, just, just, just be mindful of, you know, if you're going to get grumpy about them using the money differently to what you intended and that's becoming a friction point, think about either not doing it or make your peace with them doing what you don't want them to do because it's their money. Um, I just find tied kind of you know you can have this but only if you do x y and z just gets a bit a bit uncomfortable a bit messy so i wouldn't do it that way personally you're welcome to uh, your family relationship is yours and you you know the people involved and what's going on uh but I, i'll just i'll just throw that out there for what it's worth just having having thought about it a bit before it depends on the kid though too right totally like does. just just to be honest about things yep. like you yep. know some kids are <laughs> different to others and yep. some will have a more propens- propens- propensity to to Correct. quote unquote waste it so 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need to shape. But I would almost say don't, don't do it at that point, or do it in your own name and tell them you're keeping some money for them or something else. You know, doing it then telling them how they have to use it just gets gets messy. I, I guess you can I, be I would, general you know. general in it though, right? It's like this can yes. only be used for uh, a house or this or that or that. Sure. There's, still, there's options, optionality in there, yeah. but this it's not it's not money to sort of like have a, have a great couple of years in Europe and, and come correct. back pennyless. Correct, correct. I agree. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Mate, our question this time from James. He says, hi, Scott and Ram. Thanks for the fantastic podcast. Always great to hear your long-term calm perspective on investing and what's happening in, quotes, the market. Hmm. I think that's one for you, Ram. Uh, (laughs) My question is regarding allocation of regular deposits to a pool of indices and high quality stocks okay imagine there is some imaginary person with an imaginary set and forget index portfolio brackets definitely not me so this is not personal advice uh, <laughs> i like it james i don't think you're going to believe that we didn't think it was going to be you mate but but i appreciate you making and giving us the um the plausible deniability uh, here is here is the imaginary person's uh allocation mate 20 percent all world x usa etf 20 percent nasdaq hedged etf U.S. total stock market ETF, 15% ASX 300, 15% Solpats, I own shares, 10% two small cap value funds that are actively managed. James says, this imaginary person's allocation is auto investing, which happens fortnightly into these using the broker Perla, where it adds to one at a time, maintaining that percentage split. So let me stop here for a second. Uh, not to give Perla a wrap, just to explain what's going on here. When you invest with Perla, you can basically say, here's my model portfolio. When I add money, keep this keep this allocation percentage. It's kind of the way that that thing works. So when he says maintain the percentage split, that's what he's saying. Uh, you set the the allocation and it manages, effectively rebalances with new contributions to get to that. Doesn't I don't think it sells anything, but as you add money, it kind of puts money towards getting back to that allocation that you've kind of preset. All right. Over the past few podcasts, as James, there's been some discussion around the strength of the US dollar, making global and US-based stocks less appealing at the moment to invest in, given the currency headwinds. But he says at the same time, the ASX is full of miners and banks, so they're not so appealing as long-term growth prospects, with Sol Pats in my portfolio to diversify a bit in Australia for this reason. So my question, here's one for you, Ram. What long-term diversified investments would you recommend this imaginary person put their money into right now in Australia and globally given these two factors? Would it be currency hedged overseas in US ETFs or is this person coming to the frustrating conclusion you've likely reached at some point in your careers? There is no other option when investing in Australia but to do the work and start digging through individual stocks on the ASX instead to find some value. James says, Scott, insert a promotion here for Motley Fool Share Advisor, of which I'm already a member, uh, which also probably I give straw man a plug to. One quick follow-up question. With Perla Auto Invest, it allocates each investment to the share that's furthest away from your target allocation. Is this actually smart to do? Wouldn't it end up watering your weeds as opposed to adding to your winners? Or, given they're all fairly diversified issue ETFs, is this really not an issue? Cheers, gents, from James. All right, let's do these in order, mate. Um, James wants long-term diversified investments given the challenge of a low Australian dollar and the massive overweightness of banks and miners in Australia. Or, as he says, should he just basically give up and say, I need to find individual stocks? 
I don't think the the choice is that stark. I think the spectrum uh, is is wide, and you can sort of slide along to where you want to mm. full massive maximum diversification through passive ETFs, yep. through to hyper focused stock picking and only stock picking. It, 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 this is the exact comment mm. I made before. I mean, James has nailed it. He's, he's got it. We, we are really, really fine tuning at, at this point. Yeah. I would say don't overthink it. Keep it simple. I think it's not a it's not a point in time decision either. You want to think more strategically. Yeah. What what is the strategy here? And you've kind of outlined mm-hmm. it already. Mm-hmm. We've at least inferred it. Um, uh, so what you should do now versus what should I just generally do over time and just do the unremarkable thing, but do it, do it consistently. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It is, there's a subtlety there. There's a nuance there, but it's, but I think that's the more important question is, is, is the second one. So I would say again, very, very easy and probably unsatisfying in a lot of ways, <laughs> just spend less than what you earn and continue to dedicate a portion to various investments. Now, yeah. what are those various investments? Yeah, I think you make some good points. We've talked about it recently. The dollar's really low. Could it get lower? Absolutely. Could it stay there for ages? Probably. Does it tend to mean revert? Yeah, it does. How do I play that? Well, look, I'm, this is money that's going to be put aside for years, so I probably am less aggressive when the dollar's low and I'm a bit more aggressive when the dollar's high. And that's about as sophisticated as you need to be. So a bit of money comes in this month. I'm just not going to put it to the, to the S&P fund. I'm going to focus more on Australia. Oh, I don't really like the banks and that at the moment. Well, okay, maybe I'll lean more towards a Solpats or you know, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. uh, stock pick that you, you, you're, you're comfortable with at this point in time. And if you just don't know, we'll leave it in cash. Don't, don't, you don't, there's no one got a gun to your head saying, you must invest this in something right now. And I would play it like that. Three years hence from here, we might find the dollars at 93 cents. Um, the banks are super cheap because they've just wiped themselves out for somehow, you know, and then it's like all, all of a sudden the consideration changes. But the broad yeah, yeah. climate of, of your actions is unchanged. Spending less than what I earn, regularly putting it into investments. And so don't, don't, don't think about, I mean, what, whatever answer – and, and a lot of people you've got to remember this with podcasts too. Might be listening to this next year, <laughs> or you know, <laughs> a, out of context. So it's 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 yeah. Just don't overthink it. You're, you're doing exactly the right thing. And if you want my specific answer, it would be yeah. I I I well, what do I do? Yeah. I, I focus almost entirely on stock picking because that's what I like to do. Yeah. And I'm just and more importantly, I've got the time and commitment to to do it because I like doing it. It's not it's not a job <laughs> per se. So I, that's <laughs> the way I'm going to do. And yep. I'm, and, yep. and as money comes in, that's available to invest, I'm going to look around at my opportunity set and go for the, the best as I appraise it risk adjusted return. Um, and at the same time, when I get some money in super, I'll probably just allocate that to a, a combination of offshore and onshore passive ETFs. Simple, yep. simple. That's it. That's, it's basically it. Some point in time, some money will come in and, and, you know, um, It'll just be a wonderful time to invest overseas. Not only is the Aussie dollar nice and strong, but you know one of my favorite stocks like an Apple or a Google or a, something like that might be trading on a PE of 12. And like, okay, I'm going to buy some Apple at a PE of 12. Thank you very much, because that makes sense. Uh, keep it simple. Yes, great answer. Um, I'm going to add some thoughts, uh, but largely Rams cover the big questions. Couple of things. Um, just a reminder that the NASDAQ and a US total stock market ETF have some overlap, which is not bad or good, just is. So just keep that in mind. Um, same, same with the S&P 500, by the way. Some of the NASDAQ stocks are in that index. They're not, they're not mutually exclusive. Just as long as you know that, that's cool. Again, no, no reason why it should be a problem. Just, just mentioning it in passing. 
Secondly, we have a service, I'm going to give a plug, speaking of ShareAdvisor getting a plug, called ETF Investor. Um, for anyone who's listening and wants to, fool.com.au slash join slash, uh, sorry, just join dash ETF dash investor. Uh, shameless plug. Um, but it, I, I say it for two reasons. One is because I'm giving you a plug. It's super cheap. By the way, it's like 29 bucks for the first year. It's just dumb cheap. Um, but secondly, we have, to your point, James, chosen to, within that, uh, under allocate to the US at the moment relative to what we'll do in the future when the dollar is higher. But we're not going to, we're not, not allocating to the US at all right now. And over time, when we change it, we'll change it when the currency is more attractive, but we won't stop investing in Australia either. So I think it's kind of one of those, you know, straight down the middle of the fairway, but make some, make some just, and I want to, I want to under over allocate to like 10 percentage points, something like that, right? So the amount we're putting into US ETFs at the moment is lower than it will be when the dollar's higher. And that's just the way we'll do it because it doesn't make sense to over-index there right now. But we like the ideas in the US and we're happily adding to them over time. So those things are absolutely true. Uh, by the way, you're a member of ShareAdvisor already, James, so you'll be able to access ETF investors. So go have a look at that if you want. Um, I think you're right, Ram. Dollar cost averaging is is important. Uh, but I also would say here's the real problem with um, with investing in overseas markets. It's generally the case there is a rough correlation, very rough, but a rough correlation over time between the US, sorry, the Australian dollar and we talked about this by the way on Friday in a different context between the Australian dollar and the US stock market in other words when the US market is down the Australian dollar is also usually down so the idea of like how can I wait till the US market drops then put some money in the, in the US that's normally when the, US, the Australian dollar is low against the US when the Aussie dollar is high you're like oh thank goodness finally I'm getting 85, 90 cents in the dollar now so I'm invest in the US it tends to be the case no guarantees, no promises it tends to be the case that the US market is higher why is that? well for a lot of reasons but basically um, when the US market is expensive, plenty of people want to invest in Australia or overseas instead. So they throw a lot of money over here, so that pushes the Australia dollar up. When the US market falls, US fund managers and US investors' pension funds get a bit skittish. They bring us dollar currencies home. They push down the Australian dollar because they're selling Aussie dollars. They're buying US dollars to, to repatriate their cash because they're worried. Uh, so it's, it's very hard usually to be able to have, you almost need to make those trades independently if you really want to take advantage of a lower dollar than a low US market or a high dollar and a high US market or vice versa. It just is. So, and it's not, not guaranteed to be, but I'm just going to let you know there's no, there's no free lunch there. So just be a little bit careful with, with what you're expecting to do. But as I said, I, I would, as Ram said, dollar cost average in whatever strategy you have. And then over time, um, you might want to tickle up one percentage, tickle down the other as the dollar moves around a little bit. Why? Because you might as well if there's not relative opportunity, but don't sweat the small stuff. You're roughly right. I think it's going to be completely fine. Yeah. Um, with um, with the auto allocation, mate, though, I think this is an interesting question about watering the weeds and, and that kind of stuff. Is given it's a straight allocation, what I, what I, well, I'll half answer it, James. What I like about the approach Pearl has taken is they're not selling stuff to rebalance; they're only rebalancing with your new money. So you're not you're not pulling the flowers as you would be if you said, "Hey, this stock's gone up. Let's sell it by the cheap by the by the the one that's gone down." That would be absolutely watering the um, watering the weeds and pulling the flowers. They're letting the flowers bloom. Now, maybe they're adding money to the weeds in a relative sense. Um, so, you know, there is some that potentially, but at least they're not selling the good stuff to fund the other stuff. They're using the new money you're adding to rebalance that portfolio, get towards rebalancing that portfolio. So I like, if you're going to do it, I like the way that Perla was chosen to do it. Um, I like Perla, by the way. I have no vested interest in it. I don't own shares or there's nothing, there's no relationship with us and the Motley Fool and, and Perla, uh, with the exception of they give some free trades to ETF investor members, funnily enough, but we get no money out of that. It's purely for our members, um, just for absolute disclosure and avoidance of doubt. 
Um, but I, I like at least they're not selling stuff to re I would never ever sell to rebalance personally for exactly the reasons you talk about. Just wouldn't do it. Um, automatically, I might do it if my position got too big. That's a different thing. I wouldn't. I wouldn't sell to rebalance to an arbitrary allocation just for the sake of it. Would I want them to add to the lower one? I think yes, actually. In an, if I if I'm doing an ETF type strategy, I wouldn't. I wouldn't in my own portfolio say, you know, I've got 20 companies in there. A couple really suck, so let's add the money to those because they've fallen recently. That would be crazy. Uh, so the more individual stocks you had, I wouldn't get them to rebalance to that. Uh, I've got some. I've had some absolute dogs in my time. Uh, probably got a couple still. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want someone automatically saying, "Hey, that company sucks. Let's buy more shares in that one." That'd be a terrible idea because they're ETFs. You kind of talking about relative values rather than absolute values. So you're pro it's probably not going to kill you either way. Is probably my view. Do you have a thought mm. on the uh, on the balancing auto invest strategy, whether done literally automatically or, or as a strategy that's done manually by a listener, mate? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, the, the like in finance, like in life, there's there's trade offs with every decision, and yeah. the trade off there is that it's just you you might not be doing it in the most rational way, but it's just being automated and you're actually, there is advantage in taking yourself and your considerations mm. out of it because you, you might be wrong a lot of the time too in, in what, what you think. <laughs> so I, I really like that aspect um, uh, of it. I agree with you. I, I think simple, selling for the sake of adhering to some reasonably arbitrary uh, weighting is, is usually yeah. not a good idea. You're just never going to enjoy. The, the reality is as with indices and with portfolios, you will look back in time. And the, actually, it's called the rule of five. And the rule of five says that for every five shares in your portfolio, one will just bomb. It'll do really badly. <laughs> I've Three, never heard of that ever. Haven't you? you? Oh, no. I don't know where I heard it from, but it's always stuck with me. So, so one, one, one will just be a disaster, right? Um, you know, <laughs> maybe not a zero, but, you know, a permanent loss of capital <laughs> yeah. of, of you know, two yep. thirds or more of your money. And you just think, gosh, what a dog that was. Mm -hmm. And Lord knows I've got my share of those. Um, and and then there's then there's the, uh, the mediocres and they're about three out of the five right these are the ones that yeah, give or take a percent or two they pretty much do what the market does <laughs> and then you got the other end of the of the bell curve which is the one that just shoots the lights out right and and then it, you know it, it, it's it's a heuristic it's not a scientific mm -hmm. law or anything like mm -hmm. that but it's a general truism and and the the reality is if you're reweighting on on that one super out uh, a compounder um, or, or selling outright to take a profit, quote unquote, mm. you're doing yourself such a massive disservice. And, and I, I generally think when you look at the real wealth creation success stories out there, it's generally been not a story of someone with just some incredible foresight and stock picking ability, but just bought a bunch of stuff, hit and miss, but the, the real skill and talent and, and, luck if you want was just holding on to that one and stubbornly sticking with it year after year after year and you just look at that 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 is what has delivered the returns um so yeah don't don't i just keep coming back to, to my, my point here don't overthink it right and mm. and the best way to rebalance is just with new money and for me the, that is is usually just so we're looking at this point in time regardless of profit or loss regardless of anything else what's the best use for this new money and assuming i don't push weightings really to silly levels then then i think that's just the smartest way to go yeah i like that mate i like that let's um let's go to a question from james different james he says hi scott and andrew with current housing supply under intense scrutiny would it make sense for our government to incentivize investors to purchase or invest in newly built homes similar to what they do for first home buyers 
There's plenty of talk about revisiting negative gearing and CGT policy, with some commentators suggesting this could make the housing supply crisis even worse. Any investment property podcast you listen to will mention the importance of, quotes, investment grade property, close quote, where you're encouraged to buy in areas with a high percentage of owner-occupiers and limited land supply, causing great tension between owner-occupiers and investors. Do you think that by changing policy to focus on newly built homes and even disincentivizing investor activity in the established market, Australia would develop a more sustainable property market? Thanks, James. Really good question. I right. have a feeling you might have some thoughts on property. I, I mean, we haven't discussed on the podcast before, but if I, if I give you enough, if I just talk for a bit, you're able to kind of come up with some thoughts on Australian property. What, what I'll, I'll tie it back. I'm, I'm, look, I'm bringing it back to property or Bitcoin. So take, take <laughs> your choice. Can I, can I say quickly, I meant to say this before, I'm going to interrupt you. When you were talking about, oh, this, this, this farmer on the podcast, I'm like, Andrew's in the farm podcast. That's interesting. like, Oh, hang on. It's a big... It, yeah, it big <laughs> was. Point. Guilty. Yeah, yeah of, course Guilty. Was, of course it was. I, I was silly me. I thought, well, that's, I wonder why he's doing that. Was it? He's book, oh, Bitcoin. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, sorry, back, back to property, mate. Um, should we incentivize newly built homes and maybe disincentivize already existing dwellings? Certainly the former, in my humble opinion. Um, I, look, again, we. I tend to be a markets guy. Markets are good at solving a lot of problems, um, yep. but what we want to do is make sure that they are transparent, fair, open, little barriers to entry. We, we want to foster mm-hmm. markets to do to be their best, and we really want to avoid going to sort of down, you know, crony capitalism sort of lanes and yeah. and 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 you know, in, leading things that lead to the creation of oligopolies and other kinds of things, which I actually say is probably market failures, if, if, if anything else. Yep. So I don't think government should tinker too much. But at the same time, that is really the role of government, especially when you're looking at raising revenue. And that is you want to, as you've said many times, you really want to tax the things you want less of and give incentives to the things you want more of. You don't want to do it from a command control kind of standpoint because that's communism <laughs> or, or close to it. You know, and we just, it's not an ideological yeah. thing. Unless I think the jury's you know, definitely in on that. We, we, it, yeah. it doesn't work. Um, so giving the first homeowner's grant was always stupid. It doesn't, didn't help any. The only people that helped were, were vendors. That's who it helped, right? And that's that, Unequivocal. It's unequivocal. It's not even a, 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 I don't think, a controversial thing to say. Because every. Tell us us why, in your opinion, I I agree with you, brother, but tell tell us why a first homeowner's grant, which in theory should help the first homeowner, why did it not help and why did it help sellers instead? Because people will bid up to what they can bid up. And if you give them more money, they'll bid up to that. But they're not just giving it to you, they're giving it to all the first home buyers. (laughs) So everyone bids more, there's no more properties available. More demand, prices go up. Right, exactly. It normalizes. Economics is really a study of equilibria in a lot of ways. And it just, it just, so it's sort of, there's maybe if you're first in line and maybe there are certain advantages, but it it, it doesn't. How many times do we have to do it before we realize this doesn't work? We've been (laughs) trying various schemes of this of one flavor of another forever, and Mm -hmm. lo and behold, it doesn't work. And this is, it's, you know, a 12 year old will tell you that it is supply and demand. Now, the trouble with increasing supply is that there's a huge lead time on that. To just all the regulations and the, mm. just the time of, of construction and, and, the, and the rest of it. But if we were to have any serious, long-term, sensible response to the housing crisis, <laughs> we need to build more homes. I know that there's a lot of other stuff we could do and should do as well, but that, to my mind, is that's, that's ultimately the end of the day, like the, the biggest needle mover, even though even if it, albeit the slowest, slowest one. Mm. So 
I'm all for I'm all for encouraging investors to in to to invest in new properties because that's going to increase the supply. Absolutely, let's make it easier for them. Maybe I'm less sanguine on the disincentivizing for existing properties. You might be surprised to hear me say. Um, um, I mean, it's a question of degrees again, or how much are we talking here? I, I do really think it gets kind of silly to have very, very favorable, you know, for people who have 10 investment properties in their super, I kind of think you're just taking the we at that point, um, you know, so there, there's a lot of tightening up yeah. of things that can do, but look, let's keep it high level. Let's keep it broad. Should we, should we be, um, should we be providing incentives for, for a property investment full stop? No, we don't need an incentive. Every man and his dog wants to do it anyway, right? It's <laughs> Australia that we're talking about. Like it's impossible to put that fire out, it, it seems. So no, we don't, we don't need general, really ill-thought-out in- incentives, but we do want the incentives for the thing that we do want, and we definitely want more houses and, and units. Is there an argument? I'm going to answer the question differently, but I'll, I'll just play devil's advocate for a second. I don't, I don't actually necessarily believe this, so it's a worthwhile conversation. Is there an argument that government incentives like negative gearing are effectively just indirect rent subsidies? If you know, if negative gearing didn't exist, if I, if I bought a property, to your point, there are so, there are X number of properties out there. Mm. Uh, there are so, and there are X number of potential buyers, owner occupiers, and investors, and the market will find its own level on price. Is there an argument to say that at, at, at a or the given price, we end up with a situation where? The, the negative gearing, the tax deduction is something the, the, the landlord doesn't have to pass on to tenants because the government is effectively paying part of the rent in, in, in an indirect way. Is there an argument that rents would be higher without negative gearing because of that indirect subsidy that would disappear? Oh, I think that would definitely happen. I mean, interest rates went up and what happened to rents? I mean, yeah. uh, I'm trying to keep my language clean, but poo rolls downhill, yeah. right? Like that's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the brutal reality of, of, of the system. And again, back to markets, there will be a natural tension between what people yeah. are able, capable, prepared to sort of pay and what people think that they can get away with charging. And that's, that right. again, is, is, is a good thing. I don't want to tinker with it. You might be, again, surprised. I'm, I'm against rent control in, in, mm. in most circumstances, are there to that, but generally, I'm I'm against that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think the immediate impact of of getting rid of negative gearing would be to increase rents, like because, mm. because and, and we've seen this come out a lot, particularly on social yeah. media. It's just like all the agent emails going around that have been leaked. It's just like, yeah. oh, we've now got an excuse to put. I know you don't know that you own the house outright and whatever, but higher yeah. interest rates put the rents up. You can, yeah. you know. So so it will happen. It, it, it'll it'll hundred percent happen. And to your um, point about the lack of or the supply and demand imbalance or really 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 low vacancy rates, it also means that not only is there a a, a, a a qualitative justification in the sense that you can kind of you can justify it to yourself in words, but mathematically, if you do put the rents up, there's less chance your tenant's going to leave because there's nowhere else to go to. And so yeah. you get both those happening at the same time. By the way, as as we talk about with markets, a perfectly rational thing for a market participant to do in a in a, in a limited or supply constrained scenario is to put prices up. I mean, you, in any yeah. any market now, I think housing is different, which I'll get to in my answer in a second. But yeah. in any market, if there is constrained supply. Yeah. The only rational decision for the owner of that constrained supply is to put prices up. Because which is why supply is the answer. Things. Which, right. is, well, which is why supply perhaps, is the answer. Perhaps, perhaps. You don't think so? Can I give my answer? Well, I, I, would, I, would, like, I, would, I would say this. Again, If <laughs> magic thought experiment, but I'm just yep. going to double the amount of houses in Australia tomorrow. Mm. What happens to prices? What happens to rents? What happens to the environment? What happens to infrastructure? 
So my my answer, that's a rhetorical question. I'll let you answer it though. My, my yeah. answer is a combination of all of those things. Um, so if I was housing minister tomorrow, I'd like, I'd like to be treasurer, but if I'm going to be housing minister instead, if Andrew gets the job of treasurer and I have to walk into his office and say, Andrew, can I please have these policies for housing in Australia? And he says, depends. I haven't decided yet. Uh, I've got, I'm in the big chair, Phillips. Sit down there and shut up. Uh, but, but until that point, uh, if I was housing minister, I would do a few things, mate. I would, so generally, I'll wait the, I don't know if it's the easiest one first. For all assets from tomorrow, I would reintroduce the indexation of capital gains and remove the arbitrary 50% capital gains tax discount. Mm-hmm. It was never necessary. It was never more sensible. It never made, uh, it was never more justified uh, than the current indexation rate. Uh, in theory, in air quotes, it was simpler. What it was was really a tax break for investors because if you held assets for two, for a year and the inflation rate was 2%, you got a 2% indexation on your cost base. All of a sudden, on the fifty percent arbitrary discount, you got a fifty percent discount or fifty percent, you know, result. Uh, so it, it just incentivised those medium-term holdings for political reasons. There was there was never any absolute justification for it. Um, also, by the way, over long term with high inflation, the investor is actually better off. Index. If I held something for twenty years at a five percent average inflation rate, I'm better off to index than to have a arbitrary halving of the capital gains tax discount. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I would go back to that. It was never. Like there was never a theoretical. Sorry, you were saying. I like that. No, I agree. Yeah. There was never a theoretical justification. It was all just politics and vote buying, which you're entitled to do, but it, there's, there's no there's no tax policy justification. That's an easy one. Secondly, I would get rid of negative gearing tomorrow for uh, residential property. Uh, I I think residential property is shelter. It's not. It shouldn't be considered primarily an investable asset like any other asset. It's not like any other asset. If I buy shares in Woolies, I buy shares in Woolies. If I buy someone's house, I'm I'm responsible for someone who is a tenant. And I don't think we should be playing with house prices or adding to demand using tax policy, as you just said before, mate, about what you incentivize and what you don't incentivize. Any incentive for someone who goes to an accountant who says, buy a house, you can equally gear it, it's going to be great, you'll pay less tax. The, the very nature, the very reality of that conversation adds to demand for residential housing, which pushes prices up. Devil's, I think we can do without it. Devil's I'd advocate it tomorrow. Though, for, yeah, please. If I run a business, yep. I take in so much money. And then I subtract my costs, yep. and then I pay tax Correct. on on the profit. That's that's essentially what neg- um, yes, well, that's absolutely. not negative gearing, but that's what you're doing, no, right? You're deducting yep. costs off. Um, there is a there is an uh, it, where got to be careful. I don't, think I, needs, I don't think it needs to be equal. I don't think we need to be idealistic about ideological about saying all transactions of that nature need to be taxed equally for the sake of it. Mm. You can't take that for you. I just don't. I think mm. I, I would for everything except residential property because we say this is a special form of asset. We don't treat workers like we treat capital equipment. We have unions and we have minimum wages. And I, the government does have a minimum price for computers or a minimum price. We say they're all assets or they're, also, they're all resources. We treat human resources differently to capital resources yeah. by way of legislation. Yeah. I have zero issue with saying all costs of owning an asset can be deducted from that asset, the income generated from that asset, except... Residential housing, which is carved out, I have mm. zero issue. With, I know it's, I know it's a, mm. a wrinkle in the tax law. I think it's an easy, easy, easy thing to do. I'd do it tomorrow. So you, you, you but, claim right down to where you've made um, no profit, and that's it. You just can't take the loss and apply it no, against nothing. other income. Yeah, nothing. No, okay, nothing. I wouldn't, yep. I, I, would, I wouldn't make tax deductible at all. Yeah. Oh, no, so not. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Nope. Yep. Yep. Just stop it tomorrow. It doesn't need to be. If you don't, you know, if, by the way, I'd grandfather it for existing owners because I don't. You know, there's no point pulling the rug out from people for the hell of it. That's just that's just unreasonable and creates a market crash. I would just say tomorrow, you can't you can't you know interest on isn't isn't deductible on residential property. Mm-hmm. Just isn't. Mm-hmm. We don't do it for homeowners. You know, if we're going to say it's all the same, we should do it for homeowners as well as as investors because again, same asset, right? So why why do we treat it differently? We treat it differently because it's a different 
circumstance. I think the same is true for that. I mean, I'm not a. Um, I'm, I'm I really am playing devil's advocate here. I think. Yeah, you, please you, do. You, just to hammer the point home, this is the, and I've made it before. That's the difference with with residential property. There's a there's a family yeah, there. Of course, it is. You know, I I, I just yep. I feel as though. It's your choice. You've got an asset. You do what you like. And, and honestly, full respect, charge as much as you can get away with in a market Correct. system. I, I yep. would. I absolutely. would absolutely yep. charge what I, what I reasonably feel as though I can get away with charging. You'll really, think it's fairly, by, to, to be fair. That, well, that's my next point. <laughs> okay, sorry. That's my next point. People tend to assume <laughs> I rail because of rents are so. No, I rail because, yeah. I, well, okay, this is what the market says. Okay, yeah. fine. I'm happy to yeah. pay it. But bloody hell, please like fulfill your yep. obligations as well. That's, that's, that's what really gets in my craw. So I feel as though invest in property all you like, charge what you feel yeah. is, is reasonable, but you, you, are, mm -hmm. you are playing with a, a, a family here and just, just fulfill your own contractual obligations. It might suck, but they're not being difficult if they want the, uh, the tap not to leak. You know, they're not being difficult yeah. yes, exactly. because there's a hole in the roof when there's mold growing everywhere. That's, there's, that's just mm -hmm. deal with the reality of your situation, which is if you're choosing to invest in this asset yeah. class, yeah. There, are, there are very real maintenance costs. The Queen of England could be living there. Someone who just walks around in slippers and never touches anything and that property is, yeah. going, to, is going to depreciate, right? Accept yeah. it, deal with it and maintain it to a certain standard. And the other thing I'd put in is just... Uh, I think um, while while you should charge what you can, I think there should be some limits on 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 the on the degree of increase. To turn around to someone and say your rent is doubled, is yeah. is difficult. And I and I would I would change the um, uh, I would put no no clause evictions in there. But sorry, I'm stealing your thunder. But I had I had, had that. No, I think I think it's great. I, I, the only thing I would say with that mate is I I don't know whether those caps on increases actually work because it just incentivizes people to be dumped out of. Hams for spurious reasons, so you could charge the next person more money, all that kind of stuff. I just, I, uh, I if you, you guys say charge whatever you want, but then say you can't charge whatever you want if it's an increase. I don't know if that's, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I wouldn't limit the increases. I think it becomes artificial at some point, puts more pressure on a, a landlord to get rid of a tenant for spurious or other reasons, so they can charge more to the next person who comes in the door. I think, I think, with the trouble with investors, property investors in Australia, is that mm. they, it is treated as some god-given right of guaranteed kind of returns, and that yeah. there should be no risk yeah. that I take. And it's like, no, it's you're an you're an investor. Now, if I buy a bond, mm -hmm. I've got a certain expectation that that coupon rate is going to be paid. Yeah. And what I can get out in that now, I feel as though when I set up an invest, like I bought an invest, I bought a property, I want to rent it out. Okay, I'm going to commit to making sure it's of a of a decent sort of um, a standard, and I think I can get this much rent, and I, I get it, and and someone comes in, and my calculus in framing up my investments when I look through the, through the return potential lens will be framed on 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 that. Now, if something happens in the wider economy, whether that be with interest rates or whatever it happens to be. And oh, it turns around. It's like, well, no, that sucks, but that's investing. And it's not that you have some God-given right to automatically like pass that on to the to the full brutal extent, whether justified or not. It just it doesn't feel it doesn't feel right when there is a family and usually the, the lower tier of society that 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 is that is wearing the brunt of that. You've taken the market has moved against you, yeah. dynamics have yeah. moved against you, that kind of sucks. Now, again, that doesn't mean you can never pull up the rent. And I don't know what the magic number is, right? Is it 3%? Is it CPI just? I don't know. That's a whole other debate. But at the moment, even within lease, as long as you do it uh, no more than uh, once a year, I can, I can arbitrarily turn around and say, yeah, your rent is 10 times as much. <laughs> right? I can do but that. But isn't that the, I mean, I, the, the, how, how do you square that with if I was landlord, I'd choose as much as I could get? But what there's a difference. Okay, it's an excellent point. Here's the difference. Now, I'm looking at various places that I might want to rent. This yep. place looks good. This is the going rate. 
Now yes. I need some security of shelter and all of the great things that, that matter with, with property and why it actually has intrinsic sort of value. Yep. And I can make a calculus on, um, informed judgment on that. And that look, you know, rents will go up over the years, but this is kind of, of, of what it's going to be. The reality in Australia is, is that I'm going to struggle to get anything more than a six to 12 month lease. And after that period of time, they can do whatever the hell they like. That, that's, that is the difference, right? And I, I think as an investor, you, you need to sort of take a little bit of risk on hand that things will, will certain change. So, so set a rate that you think is appropriate, factor in what you can get away with charging, which is, which is reasonable, but you don't, I mean, it's not like a share where I go, oh, or a bond, or I don't like this anymore. I'm going to sell it and move on. No, I have to now go find a new place. I need to pack up everything. I've now got to pay bond in two places. I've got a rental overlap period. I need to pay thousands. in. Take it from a dude who's moved seven times in 10 years. Moving is a massive, massive, stressful, costly, difficult thing to do. And for people who are living paycheck to paycheck, to now come up with four extra weeks of rent and blah, 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 blah. It's just sort of like... <laughs> you know, it's a, that that totally. that is the difference. Yep. That is the difference to me. Totally. Okay. So the other, so back to back to the thing. I would so I would I would remove access to tax deductions for interest for residential property. I might be motivated to keep it for new property for the reasons that James suggests that we want to incentivize, and you've already highlighted, use tax incentives to to incentivize what you want more of, which in this case is more building. So it may well be that you say to people, I will I will let you. Do it for the first X years of the property's ownership to incentivize that that investment in a new property rather than buy something existing. Mm-hmm. I would do it forever, otherwise you you effectively you just you just continue negative gearing, right? Yeah. Um, and you end up with two. But you know, the first five years, the first ten years, or whatever of, of the building's life, I could absolutely imagine allowing negative gearing, probably just on the on the on the uh, construction, maybe on the whole the whole thing, the whole value for a period of time. That that would make some sense. Maybe ten years. Maybe it's a sliding scale. Maybe something else. Um, but I, I could absolutely suggest doing that. I can. S- there's a there's a bit of a challenge right now, right? In terms of supply, I've I've had some really good people on Twitter. People I disagree with entirely, and people I agree with entirely, but but uh, and lots in between, which are but it's a really generally a pretty good group of economists and experts and interested kind of informed people talking about property not 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 the shills and not the in either direction but the ones in between who genuinely care there's a good debate going on about let's say we did all these things how would supply increase and you say well hang on we've got 3.7 percent unemployment builders are already building as many houses as we can currently build uh what in what world do we think we can all of a sudden magically click our fingers and have x houses in a certain you know short period of time that that you know there's no frankly the, the price of housing is so high already that it just, it, it it does incentivize already the, the price mechanism alone to your point about markets ram already incentivizes new supply right um then now there's some regulations and stuff you could change to make it a little bit cheaper to build uh maybe some higher density or medium density stuff that maybe there's some regulation you might change although you wonder what regulations you'd change and whether it be safety or something else like there's regulations there for a reason so you know should we just remove them for the sake of supply probably not but we could probably relook at them so those things are are worth thinking about you and i've argued before or discussed before about population um uh, the the what you, when you say more supply what we're saying is there is a imbalance of supply and demand you solve it on the supply side i would solve it moderately on the supply side i would solve it more meaningfully as a tactical policy implementation on the demand side as well, which is when we have excess supply of housing, bring more people in. When there's a shortage of housing, 
maybe adding more people to the, to the demand side when our ability to increase supply is severely oh, constrained by available move. resources. Yeah, that was a dumb move. Well, but it yep. continues to be, right? It's never been yeah. any different. That's the thing. We, we have never said immigration policy or, sorry, population policy. If you start with population and immigration. So population policy needs to be a combination, in my view, of the available capacity of the housing market, the impact on the flow on impacts of things like infrastructure, and planning so what buildings in what places the sewage systems in some Australian capital cities are already over capacity mm. now I don't I don't want to you know put people off their breakfast but play that out a little bit <laughs> how many more high-rise buildings do you want to add to Sydney before stuff starts to happen right mm. um, general planning general community cohesion how many people in what spaces are good for us I don't I'm not saying I have an answer I'm saying let's actually have that conversation and resolve those questions before we say bugger it let's put up more houses and bring in more people mm. um, the impact on the environment I think is real I, I'm, a, I'm a card carrying greenie um, you know what is the right number of people in what places in Australia before we start having negative impacts and unwelcome negative impacts on the environment and, and what could or should we do to resolve that I would I would say James to answer your question I would do the negative gearing and capital gains tax things. I want to, and this is again, speaking of pipe dream stuff, um, I want a big national conversation which says, what is the right population, planning, infrastructure and environment combination that determines what we do with immigration, housing policy and a whole lot of other things. That That is, and maybe to Ram's point, maybe it's a massive increase of supply. We say, you know what, Dubbo, is, Dubbo could handle 14,000 more houses with the current infrastructure, including water, by the way, which we only got to go back to the drought to remember what happened with country water reservoirs, but, you know, maybe Dubbo, by the way, I'm just picking, picking a name. You know, what could or should we do? Where could we put people? Where could we build houses? Where could we, where could we have high density without causing unnecessary strain on the environment or infrastructure or, or community cohesion? Where, where does it make sense to, and by the way, when I say infrastructure, what about maybe some public transport or some walkable cities or other things? And I don't mm. mean to be, you know, I'm not trying to build big too big a story here, but saying, oh, there's some issues. Let's bring a whole lot of people in. We haven't really got the ability to create more housing because all our builders are busy and you know materials are expensive. Scruff it. Let's just bring them in and we'll work it out. We'll just supply, yeah. supply, and don't, supply. And like, don't let the bloody developers but, drive policy, right? Because right. they- 100%. Sewage for them is an externality they don't need to worry about. Traffic yes. congestion is an externality they yes. don't need to worry about. Mm. Longevity of the, the building is nothing that they need to worry about. Don't mm. ask those. They're there to do- what needs to be done when you need it to be done in the way that you need mm -hmm. it to be done. They're not there yep. to sort of to, to sort of set policy and and you know because that's what we've. I mean, we've, gosh, Lord, here in Sydney we've seen the outcome of that. Yes. So look, so I, look, that's a that's a long answer, James. But I, I wanted to do it justice. Um, I, I've said as much elsewhere. I've, I think I probably said on the podcast too. Um, I, I think we're mad not to consider the demand side. And again, let me be really, really, really 1 million percent clear for anyone who didn't hear the last time we talked about this. I have no problem with immigration. I have no problem with immigrants. I don't care from which country our immigrants come. This is not an excuse for people to be xenophobic or racist about it. Uh, it, it for me, it's a population. If our, if, our, if, if our birth rate went negative, we should bring in a whole lot of people. Mm. If our birth rate went through the roof, we should bring in nobody. And somewhere in between is where we'll live and we exist and we should set our immigration policy tactically based on our ability to absorb a growth in the population. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a perfect point. I mean, you're right. It's, it's, it's a holistic, you're just basically arguing for a more holistic consideration of Actual things. Actual policy, yeah. <laughs> and having a, north, having a North Star as to what's the general direction that, that we're heading in. And we, perfect, we, can, we can debate that. But I, I, would, I would say the right here and now is, is that mm -hmm. the, there is a supply and demand imbalance. So what, even if we freeze things yep. from here, yes, yes. we need more houses. I mean, the elephant what do, in the Where do we rule. get it from, mate? That's the problem. Like, how do we, we unscrew? Like, well, we so, built so, so Canberra. Canberra was a bunch of paddocks until we built it. 
But, sorry, but I mean quickly, we got we got a million and a half people coming in over three years, right? So we've already yeah. got a problem. We're bringing in more. Yeah, well, we, we have a three point seven percent unemployment rate. Yeah. Like it's not like there's fifteen thousand builders who are like, you know, guys, if you if you guys wanted to build some houses, we'd be happy to build them for it. Like I genuinely, I'm not being I'm not being rhetorical or cynical or mm. or expecting an answer from you, but like. When people say supply is the answer, I'm like, where where do people? Not again, not you. Yeah, no, you're right, you're right. But it's a question of Twitter. Like, where do we where do we get those? Where do we where do we get that supply from? Because we're already building as many as we can. Yeah, there's no there's no magic tap that we can. Again, I'm not talking to you. I haven't got you. No, it's no, it's 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 an excellent point. Well, and and exactly as I said at the start, you just can't. It's not Mm. a short term fit. It really is the long. So there's there's other things that we we could possibly do, but the fundamental core is longer term. That Mm. and will take ages to sort of bubble through, which is why these Mm -hmm. current policies are so clearly inadequate. You know, say, oh, we're building six thousand new homes a year. Like, well, that doesn't even cover where we're up. You know, it's 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 dumb. But I would yeah. also say, don't forget the dyna- yes. dynamism of, of markets. So when the proper incentive there, you would see the construction and building industry grow to fill that mm-hmm. void. It would. Now, would it happen tomorrow? Would it happen next year? Is it going to fix the problem three years hence? No, it won't. But we still need to get this train out of the station, right? Because it, it's going to take 50 years to grow a mighty oak. There's no way to speed it up. But the best thing I can do is start now, right? Or I can start in 10 years' time and, it, you know, so just start now. <laughs> start yeah, now is yeah. my argument, acknowledging all the points that you make. And, yeah. and then- well, that, And that's the thing. Yes, yeah. we, already, we already have, we already, even if we didn't bring another single person into the country, we have a supply shortage. Like that, those things are, we can talk about the demand side as a separate conversation, but mm. how about we do something now, given the issue we've got now, if, let's not make it worse, but let's actually start with, as you say, that the, the broader issue of we could probably fix pricing by adding a little bit more supply to the to the obviously. The well, here's the conspiracy yep. side of things, and just think about this. I mean, do you want if you're a property investor, do you uh-huh. want more supply? No, scarcity is your friend, right? Like that is, you know, I think it's something like 98% of politicians own multiple investment properties. I mean, again, it doesn't matter how ethical <laughs> you are. You are biased by your own experience yeah. and position. Yeah. You just are. Well, I am. We all are, right? And it's just, yeah. it's. I, I would say that if anyone who really understood mm. the true sort of nature of things here, and you had a vested interest in in property. You don't want more supply. You know, you want people to be able to access this super. I want first homeowners to be given more money. You know, I want all of it because it is good. It is good for me, right? It sort of sucks if you're not on the on the so called property ladder. But it, but mm-hmm. for but for those, it, it's it's exactly what you want. And crazy. by the way, the same, <laughs> well, no, on on demand, you've also got politicians who are saying, "Well, I hear what you're saying, but I actually really like to um, have more people come to the country so GDP grows." So mm-hmm. I'm not even going to. I'm not going to just the demand side either because yeah, high house. But so you talk about property investors; it, it's actually bigger than that, mate. I think it's everybody with a property. So think about the Australian housing market, the Australian obsession with property. Property prices going up because there's excess demand. Is probably electorally very, very good. Oh, it's two thirds uh, of the population, seventy percent or something like right. that, right? More people coming into the country, pushing GDP up. Also, yeah, pretty good. Particularly right now, if otherwise the economy is slowing and there might be some sort of capital R recession. What mm-hmm. if we could avoid that by just pumping the country full of people? Now, I'm being a bit cynical and a bit conspiratorial, but I'm not in. I, I have no doubt whatsoever. The politicians have at least thought this through and have at least considered it, and are not unhappy with the outcomes. That yeah, there's some issues we've got to deal with, but. Gee, right now we could do with a, a high house, higher house prices and higher population and therefore higher than otherwise GDP. If I was up for election in a couple of years' time, that's probably what I'd like. Yeah. And my, my concern, I think the, no, it's not too cynical at all. Um, I, and I, I think the, it's actually, 
a little bit worse than that would because there has Good. been so many <laughs> stimulatory efforts. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like we're at the point now where it's not a question of, oh, can we pump this for our own interest? It's actually, oh, we need to pump this just to stop this thing from collapsing on itself. Yeah. Right, like we we can't we we they've already rolled back their APRA buffers, right? We were talking not that long ago. Oh, thank God they put them back after those ludicrously <laughs> low levels. Oh, that was it. How stupid was that? And then, like, I read in the paper a month later, like, oh no, we've we've gotten rid of that again. So it's 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 oh, it's depressing. Yes, yes, it really, really is, mate. With that though, I think we're probably done for today. I hope it's been a useful conversation. Uh, as always, if you want to get in touch or send us some questions, comments, or feedback, please do that. Uh, hit us up, info, I-N-F-O, at fool.com.au. Our great member services, Fools, will pass it on to me, and I will then ask it of Andrew. Uh, if you want to get Andrew directly, the only place you can do it is on Elon Musk's Twitter. Go to at Sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest on Twitter. Get all of Ram's absolute goodness. Uh, follow me on Twitter or Insta at TMFScottP or at The Motley Fool AU and you can get me on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Scott Phillips Money. I'm also on Mastodon oh. before you ask, Andrew. Oh, oh, yeah, that's right. They're still rocking. Um, you got to come across to Nosta, man. That's where it's at. Um, Nosta? Uh, I've got to admit, I'm not as active as I initially was. But the, the, um, uh, you, you reminded me there um, oh, no. with Facebook. You sent me a direct message on Twitter the other day, uh, uh, Margaret, Margaret Pomerantz. Oh, uh, lang language warning. Doing a review of Lux Listings, <laughs> a new reality show with real estate agents. And all I'm going to say is if you're on uh, Facebook, just, just Google us. I mean, uh, I'm sure it's on uh, uh, you know, YouTube and other places. But yeah, be, yeah Margaret yeah. Pomerantz's review of Lux Listings. Uh, yes. She, she's on a show called The Weekly and she does something every week. It's like this little, this little review thing. Uh, Margaret Pomerantz, of course, the old SBS movie reviewer and ABC movie reviewer. So she does it in the style of that, just for listeners who haven't, haven't yet seen oh, it. Oh, so good. It is, it is written beautifully and Margaret Pomerantz delivers it wonderfully. So, so good. Uh, language warning, content warning, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's a little little blue, but uh, if, you're, if you're okay with that, uh, check it out. It's, it's very, very funny. Gold. And with that, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.